But in the process of preparing ahead, the Lord gave me another message that I realized wasn't for Sunday school, and um, I believe it was for today. But we'll look at the book of Nahum, a more popular <clears throat> book is Jonah, of course. So if you find Jonah, um, the next book is Micah. The next book is Nahum. It doesn't take many page flips to get there in this part of the Bible, as they're such short <clears throat> books of the Bible. We're going to start here this morning in Nahum. The message is very simple. Three simple points that are given here by Nahum, and then <clears throat> we'll see how these play out in some other books of the Bible. So don't get real excited, kids, when we've made it through the three points in about five minutes. Um, because we'll take another few minutes to go through some other passages of Scripture and see how these truths play out. Nahum the prophet is writing about 100 to 150 years after the prophet Jonah. Jonah, of course, was told to go and preach to Nineveh that they were going to be destroyed because of their sin. Of course, he preaches. You know the story. God has mercy on them. He holds off his judgment. The city repents. But as time passes by, the Assyrians go back to their wicked ways. They go back to their idolatry. They go back to their cruelty. One of the cruelest nations to ever live on the face of the earth was the Assyrian Empire. And um, the Nahum is told by God, he's to preach this message, and that is that, Na that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. In our next Sunday school lesson, we're actually going to look at Nahum, and we'll see some amazing things that he stated that for many years Bible critics said weren't true. He talks about lions. You know, lions are not native to places like Nineveh and Babylon, and so Bible critics have criticized both Daniel and Nahum for talking about there being lions in Babylon and in Nineveh. Yet archaeology has uncovered some things to discover that there were lions in both Babylon and in Nineveh. So Nahum has some amazing things. He was quite the poet. Um, the book of Nahum is divided into two parts. Chapter one is a poem about the greatness of God. Chapters two and three combined to make a poem about the judgment of God coming against this wicked city, Nineveh. And so our verse this morning, our, our key verse is going to be verse number seven. But I want us to stand together, if we could, for a moment, if you're able and let's read these first few verses together to get the context of um, verse 7 for our message this morning. We'll begin at verse number 1, the burden or the prophecy of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite. God is, a, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth, and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? 
His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of, this, of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. Lord, we thank you that in a day when, in which we need hope, that we can find hope in your word. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us now, Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of our lack of trust in you. And um, Lord, I just pray that you would draw us to yourself. Pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, Lord, they would come to understand their need for you and receive you today. Lord, so that they can experience this peace and this hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would block out distractions. Lord, help us to be attentive and alert to the message that you have. Holy Spirit, convict us of sin and righteousness and point us to Christ this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I see a lot of parallels, as we've, I've often mentioned in Sunday school, a lot of parallels between the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, which, of course, at this time period in the Bible was, were separate nations. The northern kingdom had been taken into the Assyrian captivity already. The nation of Judah, as Nahum is preaching, is getting ready for the Babylonian captivity to take place. And many of these prophets, as we see these minor prophets, many of them have dark messages. They have sad messages. My dad's always loved teaching about Bible prophecy. And as a kid, when my dad said, turn to any of these minor prophets, I knew it was going to be a long and sad sermon. Because, I mean, what's, I mean, you got Amos, you know, the country preacher, and he's telling them, you're going to burn. I mean, it's over. You've gone too far. It's done. Prepare to meet thy God. I mean, this is the kind of stuff it is, you know, and I'd sit there shaking in my boots because um, it was just all so terrible. Or we'd go to Revelation, and you get into the book of Revelation, and man, oh, you can get bogged down in stuff. And I remember a time where I hated reading Revelation. First of all, I didn't understand it. Secondly, it scared me to death. And so um, I, I was just ready to ignore that. But something that I have seen in recent years is in the midst of all of this dark prophecy, there are some precious truths. There are some places in ver places like here in Nahum where we can find so much help as there is a wicked nation that is about to be destroyed. And we have the prophet who is giving hope to God's people. And I want to start out by saying today, no matter what happens, there is always hope if you have Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in your marriage, there is hope if you have Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in your home, there is hope. Hope if you have Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in our state, there is hope if we have Jesus Christ. No matter what happens in our nation, if we are turned over completely to a dictatorship, completely to socialism and communism, there is still hope because we have Jesus Christ. We turn on the news and it can be very discouraging. And I think that at the beginning of this year, 2022, when we don't know what's going to happen, when we see and anticipate some really bad things could happen this year in our nation, 
God showed me here that as Nahum is saying, oh man, it's about to be bad. This nation is about to be destroyed. The nation of Assyria. And of course, for the Jewish people, this is an exciting message because these irritating Assyrians have bothered them for the last couple hundred years. And they've already taken the northern country away and invaded part of the southern country and tried to take over the southern country. So they are ready to be done with them. Yet in the midst of talking about the judgment of God, which the nation of Judah is about to go through themselves, he gives them a little piece of hope. And what I want us to see this morning is throughout the pages of prophecy and scripture, in the midst of the darkness, the prophet consistently the prophets consistently offer hope. There are three points here that I think we can get, and we'll see how they apply here, but uh, the application to our lives is very easy to get. Number one, we need to embrace this truth that no matter what happens, no matter how bad the judgment of God is, no matter how severe it is, the Lord is good. We serve a God that is good. No matter what our circumstances, we can still say God is good. I have a friend that has, ha- has gone through a divorce in the last couple of years. He's lost his wife. He's lost his children. He's in a lot of isolation right now. And the other night he was going through a really difficult time and he had played an album over and over. He said all night long for two nights in a row. And then one morning he got up as he's in the midst of some pretty bad depression and he recorded a song and sent to me. And he said, uh, well, he, he didn't make much of a statement. He just said, it doesn't sound so great, but listen with your heart before you listen with your music ears. And I started the music and I thought, this sounds familiar. And then he starts singing. Now, let me remind you, he's lost his wife, he's lost his kids, he's lost his job, he's lost everything. He's living in a little RV. And the song he sent me that morning was, God's Been Good. He rewrote a few of the words that made it more applicable to his situation, but he was able to say, okay, yes, I'm depressed. Yes, everything's bad. Nothing is looking up. In fact, I've got worse to go through before it gets good again. But God is good. We can hold to this truth even when our emotions tell us that maybe he's not. We look around and we say, man, things don't look so good. The um, prophet Asaph felt this way in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, Asaph was a priest. He was also a prophet. He was also one of the chief musicians of the temple. He was a, a hymn writer. Psalm 73, he's going to tell us about the time which he almost backslid because he became so discouraged at seeing the wicked around him. And this is in a righteous nation. This is in the nation of Judah. He looked around at all the people prospering in their sin around him. He became became so discouraged, so disheartened. Anyway, God dealt with him. But before he starts talking about how terrible his life was, He starts with a statement, truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But he says, I'm going to tell you about all the bad stuff in my life. But before I start telling you about how bad everything is, let me start out with a truth. God is good. 
And he starts with that word, truly. It's that idea of amen. He's saying, this is something I'm saying that is firm. It is solid. It is not up for negotiation. It's not up for argument. It's not up for discussion. My life was bad, but God is good. We can hold to this truth. The the word translated good here in our Bibles, it's the Hebrew word tob, and it means good, kind, gentle. That's why it shows the picture of a father with his little child in his arms. As he's kissing her on the cheek, this is a picture of this word good. God is kind. He is gentle. What is Nahum saying? He's just told how furious God was, how angry God was. And then he says, the Lord is good. Good to who? Well, look at the context, all three points here. What's he saying? God's good to his people. Yes, God is angry with the wicked. Yes, judgment is coming. But God is good. He is kind. He is gentle. He's good to his people. Number one, we need to hold to the truth that no matter what happens, God is good. Number two, He goes on, he said, he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. God is our stronghold in the day of trouble. This word stronghold, the the Hebrew word means a place of safety, a fortified place, a place of protection, a place of defense. Our God is a place of defense for his people. He said, God's angry with Nineveh. God's going to destroy Nineveh, but God is a safe place for his people. How can that be? The same God that's so angry with the wicked. I mean, we have it. We see the the doctrine developed further in the New Testament. The very God who created hell for for Satan and for his demons sits in judgment and sends sinners who reject him to this place called hell. Yet at the same time, anyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ get to enjoy the splendors of heaven with him. Why? Because he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. When troubled times come, he is our stronghold. Look at Psalm 46. Psalm 46, the sons of Korah wrote, and they said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. They said, we're not going to fear. This is a prophetic psalm. They're talking about a future day when some of these things are really going to happen. They're talking about those days, I believe, in the book of Revelation when that scary stuff starts happening. They said, when all of this starts happening, we will not fear because God is our refuge. He is a very present help in trouble. Look down at verse number 10. The verse before it, he talks about the millennial reign of Christ. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. He's talking about the time period in which Jesus Christ will put an end to wickedness and set up his kingdom whose capital will be in Jerusalem and he'll rule and reign in peace on the earth for a thousand years. 
And those living here will be able to be still and know that he is God. But this truth is still the same for us. Today, we can be still and know that he is God. We can put our trust in him. Look over at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, we see this truth in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4. Paul has been executed by this point, most likely. Peter is preparing the Jews throughout the Roman Empire to prepare for persecution. He refers it to it as a fiery trial that's about to overtake them. And of course, that was the fiery trial of um, the persecution of Nero as he was blaming the burning of Rome on the Christians using that as an excuse to persecute and execute Christians. And as Peter is preparing them to face this time of horrible, severe persecution, um, chapter 4 and verse 19, he says, Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. So he says, those of you who are going to suffer after the will of God, commit the keeping of your souls to him. Look at verse, uh, chapter 5, verse number 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. And it does take humility to find our refuge in Christ, because we all like to be strong. I think that's why some of us sometimes, have, I know for in my, in my case, the reason why I consistently deal with different health issues, God constantly says, see, you're trusting in your own strength. Okay, you got to trust me a little more. And so it's that constant reminder of my pride and my self-reliance. So he tells them, they're going into persecution. He tells them, humble yourself. I mean, what's going to happen? You know, the police come knocking at the door to arrest them. If you're a proud person, I mean, yeah, you're just going to punch that soldier right in the face. I mean, just smack. He's trying to help them to be prepared. He says, humble yourself because there's a time where you're going to have to suffer. So be humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He is our refuge. We can cast all of our cares, all of our troubles on him because he cares for us. He is, first of all, God is always good. Number two, God is our stronghold in the day of trouble. He's our refuge. Number three, he says, and he knoweth them that trust in him. He knoweth them that trust in him. This word trust means to put place your hope in. He said, God knows those who have their hope in him. God knows those who are trusting in him. Of course, this reminds me of Matthew 7, 23, where Jesus talked about those who, well, they weren't really saved. And, and there's people like this even today. They don't really have their faith in Christ. They're not really saved, but they do religious deeds. Some of these people, Jesus said, oh, they cast out demons in my name. They do all kinds of amazing things. But when they stand before God, God will say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never, what? I never knew you. 
It's not enough that we know who God is. I remember a, a lady that was raised in a different denomination, started coming to Trinity, um, my, our church there in Louisiana, a number of years ago. And after a while, I mean, you would have thought this woman was saved. She was so religious. I mean, she just had it together. I mean, she just looked like the perfect mom, the perfect wife. She had been a businesswoman and then quit working in the business world while she raised her kids. And anyway, I mean, this woman had it together on every single front. One day after church, she told my dad, she said, I need to talk, Pastor. They went to the back and she said, I need to get saved. Uh, That's funny from such a religious person. She said, I don't know Jesus as my Savior. I have a head knowledge. I believe, she believed in the historical figure, Jesus, but she had never placed her faith in him for salvation, that he had died on the cross for her sin, that he had risen again. And she placed her faith in him that day and was no longer an amazing religious woman. She was a dynamic Christian woman after that. God changed her heart. But it takes putting our trust in him. And when we put our trust in him, when our faith is in him, when our hope is in him alone, he says he knows them. He recognizes those. He acknowledges those who trust in him. That's why I have the picture here of this father holding the newborn. Matthew came in the room last night and saw it on my computer. And he said, is that you or mom? I said, neither one of us, somebody else. Because all of his questions are, when he walks in and sees a picture of a baby, was that him or is that Silas? So last night was that, I'm, I, I don't know who that is, son. It's a dad and his baby. He's acknowledging that child is his. God knows us if we place our trust in him. So let's see these three truths. Number one, God is good. Number two, God is our stronghold. Number three, he knows those that trust in him. Let's go back to the prophet Jeremiah. And for this, let's look at his second book, the book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3, a sad book of the Bible. The word lamentation is a song of sorrow, a song of weeping, a wailing, basically a funeral song. And so that's what the book of Lamentations is. It's a group of funeral songs that he wrote for the nation of Judah for their funeral as they went into the Babylonian captivity. He was one of those who we'll see, um, we'll hear a little bit of from Jeremiah this afternoon in the children's service as we look at the book of Daniel, because Jeremiah gave some very specific things and told what was going to happen in Daniel chapter 5. He told about that about 70 years before Daniel chapter 5 ever took place. Jeremiah said that it was going to happen. But As we look here in his writing, um, Lamentations chapter 3, as he is weeping for his nation, as he is mourning for his nation, he writes these words in verse number 21. This I call to mind, I recall to mind, therefore I have, oh, there's the word, hope. I mean, the nation's gone to pot. They're destroyed. All his friends and relatives are on their way. He was one of those that got left behind, but people are going to Babylon. Yet in the midst of this, Jeremiah says, I have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. 
He said, y'all think it's so bad we're going to Babylon and it's bad. He said, but if it wasn't for God's mercy, he'd just fry us all right now. I mean, if you look at America, with how many babies we've killed, just that one thing by itself, it's of the Lord's mercies that America is not consumed. It's only because his compassions fail not. Don't lift up our history. Don't lift up the great things we've done for the gospel and for the world. Uh, we've already wiped that out with the blood we've shed. It's of the Lord's mercies. We're not consumed. And so this is the context that he's dealing with. His nation's going away. They're not going to show up as a strong nation for a couple thousand years. But what does he say? Or as a strong nation, that is. What does he say? He said, but I still have hope. The Lord is good, verse 25. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him. To the soul that seeketh him. So Jeremiah, in the midst of the tragedy, says God is good. He's good for those who, what? Who, who place their hope in him. Verse 26, it is good for a man both to hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Look over at verse number 31. The Lord will not cast off forever. Our nation is going through a time of judgment, he says, but God is going to bring us back, and he did indeed. But though he caused grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. We would be wise when things go really bad in our lives like it had for Jeremiah to have the attitude when we're really frustrated with our lives to say it's okay because it's of the Lord's mercies that it's not worse. It could be worse. And so that's what Jeremiah is saying. I mean, the, the, the women have been abused in the streets. The babies have been murdered. They're being taken away. They're on their way to Babylon. And he says, it could be worse. We could all just be annihilated. It could be over. But he offered hope. What was hope? The hope was the mercy of God, the compassion of God. Let's look at the prophet Hosea real quickly. Hosea chapter 3. Hosea had a terrible home life. Wow, he was a prophet from the northern kingdom, preaching to the northern kingdom. He had a terrible home life. His wife did not love him. She forsook him and ended up actually in slavery. And he has to go and buy his wife back at public auction. He goes and buys his wife back. He's displaying for the nation how that the nation had gone away from God, had pursued after other gods, but that God was going to purchase them back. And in verse number five of chapter three, he gives some of this hope I keep talking about. He said, afterwards, shall the children of Israel return. We're going to be taken away, he said, but one day we will return. And what will we do when we return? He says, and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his what? Goodness in the latter days. He said, in the last days, Israel's going to return and we're going to seek the Lord. We're going to seek his 
goodness. Hosea chapter 14, he offers some more of this hope. Look at verse four. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. Throughout the prophets, we find there's a remnant of those who trust him, but we find people like Jeremiah. Yes, he trusted the Lord. God was his refuge. God was his hope. Yet there was still suffering Jeremiah had to go through because of the sins of the rest of the nation. So never think that because you're a Christian, you're not going to have trouble. You're not going to have sorrow. You're not going to have persecution because as we saw in 1 Peter, there is persecution for the Christian, and we could face that very as a strong reality in America in the future. And if it come to that, we can say with these prophets that there is hope for those who trust in God. If we look at the prophet Joel, the prophet Joel was a prophet to the southern kingdom. I call him the prophet of the plague. There were two different plagues of... Um, locusts that the nation went through that were so severe. Um, they were followed by a drought. They were followed by disease. It was a terrible, terrible time for the nation. Yet he told them that if they repented, there would be blessing. And if you look in Joel chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month, and the floor shall be full of wheat, and the vat shall overrun with wine and oil, and I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten." the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. Look at the end of verse 26. He says, and my people shall never be ashamed. What is the hope? He said, we just had this terrible plague. We're going to have another one. Those locusts had laid eggs and they were going to hatch again. And there was, there was going to be another plague coming. He tells them about the last days and the terrible time that will be in the last days in the day of the Lord. Yet he gives them some hope. What is that hope? He said, you turn to the Lord and he will restore what the locusts have eaten. And this is the same truth we have in our lives, that there is hope in Christ. If we look at the book of Amos, this prophet, he was born in the southern kingdom and God sent him to preach in the northern kingdom. He was a farmer. He was quite an eloquent preacher, yet he was a country preacher. And Amos chapter 9, he gives the people hope as he is telling them to prepare to meet God. God is about to take them into captivity. A bunch of you are about to die but yet he gives them hope because he says in verse number 11, in that day, in a future day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. 
We have yet to see that day when God rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. But Amos said, things are bad for the nation, but God will not forget. He will raise up the tabernacle of David. Look down at verse number 14. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And this is happening before our eyes today in the nation of Israel. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't going to be troubles for the nation of Israel because we've read Revelation. We've read Isaiah. We know there are. But they're beginning to build those waste cities. And one day God will establish them there. When? When Jesus comes back. You see where the hope for the nation of Israel was and still is today. It's in putting their trust in Christ. Obadiah, the prophet Obadiah, he preaches of the doom of Edom, a border country to, to the south of the nation of Israel, They're doomed. They're going to be destroyed. They've been persecuting Israel for years since Israel was in the wilderness wanderings. The nation of Edom had been the enemy, had made themselves the enemy of Israel when Israel had tried to befriend them. But in verse number 17, he says, but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. Edom has been the oppressor. And Edom had, had recently come in and helped uh, some uh, invading forces from the south had helped them dis- attack Jerusalem and take a bunch of Jews captive. But he said, Mount, upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions and the house of Jacob shall be a fire. This word fire is significant because in prophecy, when someone is a fire, they're the ones who consume everybody else. Because what does a fire do? Kids had fun with a fire this week. We had a bunch of um, cardboard boxes that had been out in the shed behind the house and they'd gotten all moldy and we weren't going to use them or give them to anybody else. So the kids said, can we burn them? So we got this little burn pit back there and boy, they started burning boxes and they burnt boxes and they burnt boxes. They had a lot of fun. But that fire just kept consuming those boxes. And he said, oh, when it comes down to it, he said, the house of Jacob is going to be the fire. They're going to consume Edom. What's his point? His point is they're going to be victors. They're going to win at the last. Why? Look at verse 21. And Savior shall come up upon Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. That's the nation of Edom. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, this is prophetic of a future day. There are no more Edomites anywhere in the earth. Their their bloodline has been completely saturated into other Arab nations. But the nations, he's talking about a future time when those nations which will exist on the land of the Edomites, I don't know if it's who exists there today, But whoever the nation will be in the last days will try to once again destroy Israel. And God said, when it's all said and done, Israel will be the fire. You will be the one that consumes. Saviors will be on Mount Zion and will destroy the enemies. 
there's hope in the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah didn't try to give us hope. Jonah was mad. You ever get mad at God? Just really irritated at something God did. Well, Jonah didn't get mad because God allowed something bad to happen. Jonah was angry because God allowed something good to happen, and it just really, really made him mad. And so he begins to explain to God why he was angry. And in chapter 4, verse 2, he explains why he fled to Tarshish. He said in the middle of the verse, he says, Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. He said, The reason why I didn't come to Nineveh in the first place, and I hopped on the boat and went to Tarshish, he said, The reason why I ran is for I knew that thou art a gracious God. I knew you were a good God, so I ran. And people have the lack of sense to say that Jonah ran because he didn't understand God. Well, that sounds all nice and sweet, but that's not what the Bible says. Jonah said, I ran because I did understand God. I did not want him to save those people. I wanted them to die and go to hell. That's what he was saying. He said, I knew thou art gracious and you were merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. I knew you would change your mind. And I didn't want those people saved, so I wasn't going to go preach to them. And of course, he got swallowed by the well, and all that stuff happened, and he got puked up on the shore. And then now the stinky preacher has to go and preach repentance to the people. So in the midst of his anger, he offers hope. What is the hope? God is gracious. God is merciful. God is slow to anger. What is our hope? Our hope as Christians is that we have a merciful God who wants to forgive us of our sins. The prophet Micah, oh, what a dark book. Many of the things that Micah has to preach are so dark. Yet Micah himself gives us hope. You can't get much better than this hope. Micah chapter five and verse number two. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, he's telling them that the nation's gonna be destroyed. But then he says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. He said, you want to know where the Messiah is coming from? He said, he's coming from Bethlehem, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He said, the everlasting God is going to put on flesh in Bethlehem. What a powerful, amazing truth. So as he's having to tell them, oh, this is dark, it's doom, the nation's going to be destroyed, we're going away, we're going to be taken away to Babylon, he says, but, but there's hope because one day there's going to be a baby born in Bethlehem and he's going to grow up to be the ruler of Israel. And he was not talking about his ministry in his first coming, he's talking about when Jesus Christ returns as a military hero to rule and to reign for a thousand years. But he first came out of where? Out of Bethlehem. So he offers this great, great hope. If you look at the prophet Nahum, we've already read it, the Lord's good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth those that trust in him. The prophet Habakkuk, Boy, he had a heavy message to preach, yet chapter 3 is a a song, a a prayer, a song of praise that was being lifted to the Lord, and it is a dark song in many ways. He talks about the anger of God. He sings about the wrath of God. But look at verse 17. 
I mean, here he is preparing for his nation to be taken away. And he says in verse 17, although the fig tree shall not blossom. Fig tree was a a symbol, a national symbol of the nation of Israel. He's not talking about their fig trees not going to blossom anymore. He's talking about the nation isn't going to blossom. Neither shall the fruit be in the vines. The vines were also a, a, a picture of Israel. The labor of the olive shall fail, and the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold. The nation of Israel was said to be the flock of God, even in the Old Testament. God was their shepherd. He said, the the sheep are being cut off, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. He was in a nation that had gone too far. They were were past the point of no return. He turned on the news and it was all bad. And there was no turning back. There was no election that would change anything. There was no act of Congress that would change anything. God had finished He was finished with the nation. He was sending them into judgment. Yes, they would return one day, but that is not his focus right now. He's living in the reality of every time he turns on the news, it's bad. And he realizes the judgment of God is present, not coming. It's here. And he says, even though everything is this bad, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy, joy. How can you have joy? My whole life, I've heard about the Babylonian captivity, and it's all bad. And the more I study it, the worse I realize it was. So how could Habakkuk say, I have joy? He said, I have joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my, the Lord God is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon mine high places. He said, oh yeah, it's bad and it's going to get worse, but I'm going to rejoice in the Lord because he's my strength. What was he saying? He was saying the Lord's good. He was saying the Lord is the refuge of his people. He's our fortress. The Lord is kind to his people. And this is where he found hope. The prophet Zephaniah, this was a royal prophet, the great, great, I believe it was grandson of um, King Hezekiah. And while he has some heavy things, Zephaniah says in chapter 3 and verse 14, he's just constantly, he's giving us hope here about the Lord. In verse 14, he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments. He hath cast out thine enemy, the king of Israel. Even the Lord is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In verse number 17, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. He's talking about a future day when the nation of Israel would be restored. But for you and I, the day that we're restored is the day we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And we have the reality of these verses that Zephaniah was giving to the nation of Israel. Why do we have hope? We have hope because we have Christ dwelling in us. 
the prophet Haggai. He's writing after the Babylonian captivity is over and they're beginning to return. And um, of course, not all the Jews returned. Many of them stayed. But um, as they return, they're supposed to rebuild the temple. And when Haggai shows up, they hadn't rebuilt. And they said, it's not time to build. He said, yes, it is. Buy the timber, get the building supplies. It is time to build. He rebukes them for not building. And in the midst of his rebuke, though, he gives them some hope. In verse number nine of chapter two, he says, the glory of this latter house, the house that they're building for God, the second temple, Solomon's temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. He said, the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. Now you may say, oh, wow, it must have been bigger. It must have been prettier. You couldn't get prettier than Solomon's temple. It's not going to have all the gold that Solomon's temple had. It's not going to be as big as Solomon's temple was. How on earth could this temple be more glorious? He goes on, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. What is this peace? How in the world could this smaller, less glorious temple be more glorious? Because after some modifications made by Herod the Great later on, it would be this temple into which Jesus Christ would walk when he was on earth. Why was this temple that they're building in the day of Haggai more great? Because of who was going to walk into this temple. Peace would come there. Why? Because the Prince of Peace would be coming to that temple. The prophet Zechariah gives us a lot about the coming Messiah. And in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 16, he gives the nation some of this hope. He also is writing during the time of Nehemiah. And these men, as they're rebuilding the temple, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 16 He says, and the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, and they shall be as the stones of a crown. So he says, our people aren't doing so hot now, but one day God is going to restore us. He's talking about Jesus' return and ruling in Jerusalem. He said, we'll be like the stones of a crown, like the jewels in his crown, lifted up as an ensign upon this, this land. For how great is, there's the word again, how great is his, say it with me, his goodness. And how great is his beauty. He saw hope coming in the future. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament. As we come to chapter four, he has had heavy things to say to the nation. He's the last prophet that's going to be writing for 400 years. The nation has not returned to God. Yes, they, turned, they came back to the Holy Land. Yes, they rebuilt the temple, but they're not turning to God as they should. They're not serving him as they should. So there's going to be these 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. And as they're preparing for this, and he's talking about even future judgment in verse number two, he says, but unto you that fear my name. He's speaking to the remnant of people who would continue to put their faith in God. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Who is the son of righteousness? That's Jesus Christ. 
He said, those of you who fear my name, those of you who fear the name of the Lord, the son of righteousness is going to appear to. What's he talking about? Those who feared God. Yes, there's about to be a time of silence. Yes, they were about to not hear from God through a prophet for 400 years. But he said, those who trust in the Lord, those who have their eyes on God, those who are fearing his name, the son of righteousness is going to appear to. He's saying, you're going to come to know the Messiah. And about 400 years later, there were some people who feared God. Their names were Zacharias, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, Joseph, Mary. Those were some who feared God. And when the son of righteousness arose and the the God began to speak again to these people, they were the ones that heard. Who were the ones that found out about the Messiah? Those who feared God. And as Jesus arose with healing in his wings, as he came to heal, And he walked around Israel. Who was he healing? Who was finding him? It was those who feared God, those who were looking to God. And when they saw the Messiah, they recognized him. So what's the point of all of this? The point of all of it is that in tragedy and judgment, there is hope because we have Christ. There is hope because we have Christ. If you don't know Jesus Christ today as your personal savior, you don't have this hope. So the news is going to bother you more than it bothers the rest of us. You're going to get more worried than the rest of us do. And if you're saved and you're having that trouble and you're having that worry and you're developing ulcers and you're losing sleep because of the news headlines, your trust is not where it's supposed to be. So what is our hope today? Let's remember those three points. Number one, read them with me. God is good. Let's read that again. Number one, God is good. Number two, let's read it. God is our stronghold in the day of trouble. And number three, God knows those who are his. And if you are not his today, if you do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, I challenge you to put your faith in him today. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you now asking for grace to trust you more. Lord, we thank you for these truths that we need to remember on a daily basis. Lord, I pray that you would help us each morning when we awake to remember and to confess this truth that you are good. And Lord, if we remember this, we will run to you in the time of trouble. If we remember this, we'll remember that because you are good, you acknowledge those who belong to you. So Lord, let our hope on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis, let our hope be in you. Lord, the government can't help us. Our friends can't help us. Our families can't help us. Lord, help us remember that our help, our hope is in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.